Welcome to another episode of the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm your host, Beth Karis. For more than a year, many of us have been obsessed with Stephen Avery and whether he murdered Teresa Halbach in October 2005. The Netflix series Making a Murderer took 10 years to make and leaves us wondering whether Avery was indeed framed for a murder in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. My guest today is a prosecutor in that county who knows more than any of us about Stephen Avery's two cases, a 1985 rape allegation and conviction, and the 2005 murder. Michael Griesbach is an assistant district attorney in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, where Stephen Avery was prosecuted for a rape he did not commit, and years later for a murder he also says he didn't commit. Michael joined the DA's office when Avery was incarcerated for the rape, and he was instrumental in freeing him. He was part of the team that reinvestigated that rape case and agreed to his release. We'll hear that story. He's also written two books about Avery. The Innocent Killer was published in 2013 and deals with that rape case. And the other book is called Indefensible. It was published in the fall of 2016, and he defends the guilty verdict for the murder of Teresa Halbach. So let's get to it. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me here, Beth. So let's kind of go in chronological order. Let's start first with that exoneration, which we know about from all the publicity and from making a murderer. But what was your involvement? So the first I became involved was with the exoneration. You know, it's a fairly complicated story. So really, the story itself starts in 1985 um, with this horrendous rape and attempted murder, actually, uh, on the beach, on a Lake Michigan shoreline, kind of a pristine beach north of this city, Manitowoc here. And that's the crime for which Stephen Avery was convicted. And then he spent 18 years uh, in prison, and he clearly did not commit this crime. I first became involved personally um, in 2003, um, and I, I'll never forget it. It was a, a call from the Wisconsin State Crime Lab with the DNA results coming back. Uh, this was about the third appeal. Um, two appeals had failed, and this was the Wisconsin Innocence Project, uh, who got permission to retest or DNA test, actually, for the first time, this hair, the last and the final hair uh, from the crime scene, basically. And it came back to this other person, Gregory Allen, and it's at that point, um, as a prosecutor, you know, um, it wasn't enough, just that one single hair found on the victim at the time came back to this known sex offender, and not Stephen Avery. Um, I did not feel comfortable uh, releasing him on the strength of just that evidence without really looking into it very carefully. So I did. Um, uh, another prosecutor and, my, and myself spent... Uh, a night, and then the next day, actually, we split the file, and we went through very carefully, including the entire trial transcript, and uh, began to see very clearly um, that Stephen Avery had not committed this crime. In fact, uh, it was worse than that. Um, I, I, it became very obvious to me that this was not just one of those accidental uh, wrongful convictions, uh, uh, maybe that's too light of a word for any wrongful conviction, but most of them, you know, they don't happen, uh, they don't happen intentionally, or they don't happen, uh, when a prosecutor actually knows or, 
or recklessly disregards the truth and does not go after the correct person, knowing who it is. This one, uh, at least in my opinion, was going there. Um, so anyhow, the first thing we did was, uh, you know, we got made sure that Stephen Avery was cut loose, uh, signed a stipulation with the Innocence Project to get him released. And I think it was within a week, really, of finding the test results um, that we made sure Stephen Avery, the innocent Stephen Avery in this case, was released from prison. Can I ask you a question uh, there? Um, at, at that point, that stipulation you signed with the Innocence Project, the judge had to accept it, right? I mean, the judge could not have said, I'm not accepting this, and I'm going to keep him in. Right, absolutely. Uh well, I should. I'm sorry. I should. I should. Uh, I should back up. I mean, I guess it's always possible, you know, in law that both parties. Here, it was the defense, represented by the Innocence Project, and the state, represented by uh, myself and another prosecutor. We signed this stipulation. We say, Judge, you know, uh, the evidence is such that he didn't do it. Please sign this order releasing him and vacating the conviction. I can imagine. Uh, you know, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that a judge could say, hold the phone, I want to see, you know, more than just this kind of simple stipulation. I'm going to, I want to have a motion hearing and show on the record. But I live or I work in a small enough county, there's only three judges here. Um, and, you know, I think they respect that I know what I'm doing and our office does, and they certainly respect as well the Innocence Project, and this particular judge was very familiar with the trial. He was the trial judge uh, 18 years earlier. So I, I don't think there was any question he would go along signing the order vacating the conviction. Okay. An interesting question, though. I've never been asked that. I like that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll try to I'll think of a few more you haven't been asked. Okay, so you secure his release, which is in 2003. Right. But it's not finished at that point, and I'm not talking about the civil suit he files. I'm talking about you needed to figure out how this happened, right? Yeah, I felt compelled. You know, um, I started getting information, phone calls, and other information uh, through the file um, that I felt compelled to find out exactly what happened because, as I was starting to uh, note earlier, this um, was starting to, you know, it just was starting to look bad. It wasn't just a question of maybe a jury getting it wrong um, or I have uh, false identification situation, um, eyewitness identification, which is often the case in these wrongful conviction cases. Uh, it, it was beyond that, and I was starting to get some information that it was beyond that. So we took the case um, to the Wisconsin Attorney General, uh, who uh, was Peg Lautenschlager at that time, um, and she agreed to conduct an independent uh, review or independent investigation of uh, of the circumstances and whether whether any ethical or even criminal violations were committed by uh primarily the sheriff and the former district attorney, the two people who had been uh, investigating and prosecuting the, the uh, 1985 rape case. And, and these folks were not in office in 2003? No, they had moved on. Both the sheriff, uh, he had retired, and the district attorney um, left shortly after uh, Mr. Avery was convicted in 1985, kind of quickly. Uh, I don't, you know, can't prove it was, an associate, it was associated with that, but 
He left uh, to a law firm in Madison. So they were both uh, long gone, actually. So based upon the attorney general's investigation, the evidence that her office uncovered, much of what you ended up, you know, you handed over to her, what did she conclude and did her conclusion surprise you? Yeah, it did. In fact, uh, it was a, I, I share this with a few people who are, who, uh, other people who are in the, the Making a Murderer uh, Netflix series that we'll get to, of course, uh, Walt Kelly and Steve Glenn, who were the two attorneys that represented Stephen Avery in the wrongful conviction lawsuit, they both uh, agree, as do I, um, and I called it um, a whitewash in, in one of my books, or in both of them, the Wisconsin Attorney General um, and what, what the two of us, I was going to, or the three of us agreed upon, uh, kind of independently was the first 15 pages of this thing, it reads horrible. You know, as a prosecutor, you're thinking, how could these guys do that? It, it reads, and when I say horrible, I mean it's well drafted and it goes into great detail of what happened, but it's horrible in terms of the conduct it describes. And then it's like the final two paragraphs when you get to the conclusion. Um, it's almost as if the politicos in the office took over uh, and and concluded, uh, despite all this horrible stuff that they had just gone through, that, no, there were no violations here. This was uh, just a question of poor uh, police communication and maybe a little bit of closed-mindedness. So... I was really deeply disappointed in the Wisconsin Attorney General's uh, view um, in basically uh, whitewashing of the whole affair. Because there was in the prosecutor's file a, a police report about Gregory Allen, who was the actual rapist, and a lot of people in your office at that time, didn't they go to Vogel, the DA, and say, we don't think Avery's the guy? They did. Uh, they went to Vogel. Uh, in fact, another police detective went to the sheriff as well, saying, hold, hold on, uh, we really think you have the wrong guy. People in our office, as you said, went up to the DA, and the DA said, uh, no, um, I checked with, uh, or we checked with the probation uh, officer of Gregory Allen. He said, Allen's on probation. I checked with his agent. He had an airtight alibi. It could not have been Allen. Um there was a complaint. Well, first of all, that turned out to be not true. Gregory Allen was not even on probation at the time, um, and he didn't have an airtight alibi because we know he was the rapist. Um, in addition, um, Dennis Vogel, the DA we're talking about, he had actually charged Gregory Allen, the real, you know, the real assailant here. Uh, perpetrator uh, with a very similar crime, or at least an attempt uh, to do the same thing, on the on the same beach, the same section of Lake Michigan Beach, a couple years earlier. And uh, I, um, I, there was the criminal complaint and the police reports from that case in uh, Dennis Vogel's in the DA's Stephen Avery file. So. Uh, he knew about Gregory Allen, in my estimation, and he knew um, or came to know uh, shortly after the arrest of Stephen Avery that actually it was very likely Gregory Allen and that Stephen Avery that was involved in this crime. To me, that is just astounding. And so he he really he was going after Avery. Now, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, why? Sorry. Why? Yeah, it it it. I tried to 
you know, explore that a bit. And first thought really is astounding. You know, it's it's really uh, it's it's extremely rare, I think, and I don't know how often it has been shown um, that a prosecutor, and we're not just talking like overly overzealousness here, um, kind of like the wrongful conviction, and I think it was Iowa maybe that that John Grisham wrote about in the Innocent Man. Um, that was prosecutorial overzealousness. You know, they kind of close their mind about somebody else, and that might happen a lot, but it's exceedingly rare um, where the evidence strongly suggests that they actually knew that they were wrongly convicting somebody. And the, the saying, of course, and it's true, is that for every wrongful conviction, uh, the real assailant goes free. And in this case, you know, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the real assailant, Gregory Allen, 10 years later, still free on the streets, um, broke into a woman's apartment in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and, and brutally raped her. He's still in prison for that. So one of the things I tried to, to get into was the mindset, the psychology of why would the DA have gone ahead, you know, and why did the sheriff do this? It's a complicated story, Beth, and I, you know, I go into it quite a bit in the first book I wrote, um, which, by the way, was published by the American Bar Association, Innocent Killer. But I try to, uh, you know, it's really easy to be judgmental with something like that, um, and to some extent you have to be. I mean, that's the opposite of justice. But I still try to separate out as much as you can the act of what happened and the actor, um, the the DA who did this, and why he might have done it. The sheriff put him in a box. Um, The sheriff arrested uh, Stephen Avery on the strength of a really weak identification, in fact, probably in the end, a a fraudulently uh, created identification, complicated story, but... Suffice it to say that the police really put this guy's uh, picture almost in the victim's mind. Uh, so the sheriff has his men go out and arrest uh, Stephen Avery on the strength of a very weak ID. The DA has the choice, of course, at the bail hearing the next day. You know, is this strong enough? Do I charge this guy based on that? Or do I say, you know, I'm the DA. I get to formally charge someone or not. And I think I'm going to release him on bail and look at this better and further investigate. Uh, so he moved too quick. The sheriff moved too quick. The DA moved too quick. And then worse, of course, is having found out, uh, I think, within days uh, that it's very likely Stephen Avery did not do it. They plowed forward. And the mindset, I think, um, is something that the Netflix documentary did explore well. I think it explored very well. And that is, you know, who cares about the Averys of the world? You know, these mm-hmm. are he's a bad guy. Uh, who cares if we put him in prison for something he didn't do? And uh, I think that explains a good part of uh, what was going on here. And maybe political cowardice, you know, elected DAs. Uh, it'd be tough to back up. It was a prominent victim. Uh, dismissing and then refiling would be really tough against Allen when the victim earlier said, uh, yep, that's the guy, Stephen Avery, and now all of a sudden she's having to say, nope, that's the guy, Gregory Allen. So lots of stuff going on, I think, in their minds. So I highly recommend to anyone listening to, to read The Innocent Killer by Michael Griesbach because he goes into more detail about the red flags regarding particular areas of evidence, uh, 
greasy hands versus clean hands, a leather jacket lineup. Just read the book and you will see there are all kinds of reasons why they should have kept their minds open and looked elsewhere and not focused on Avery so quickly the way they did. But now Stephen Avery's out. They don't want this to happen again. The attorney general's doing an investigation. An Avery bill, they called it, is uh, is proposed, about to be signed into law, right? Um, what was that? Yeah, it's amazing. Stephen Avery became like a folk folk hero in Wisconsin, and the name, the namesake of this criminal justice reform bill, the Avery bill, uh, that's focused on um, identification, eyewitness identification, and uh, all the the heavy hitters, as they were in the criminal justice system in Wisconsin, legislators and Milwaukee County DA's office and attorney generals and uh, I believe Dean Strang and maybe Jerry Buting of Making a Murder fame were also on the Avery Task Force. Um, so it was a re- piece of reform legislation uh, having to do with improving uh, eyewitness identification and also uh, videotaped or audiotaped interrogation, uh, custodial interrogation of suspects. So, you know, uh, it was set to be signed and uh, on the very day that Stephen Avery was arrested, uh, they renamed the Avery Bill uh, after his arrest for Teresa Halbach's murder. But it's just kind of a uh, an aside here, but it's just one more just weird kind of uncanny, you know, coincidence in this case that's just full of them. Uh, you couldn't script a stranger story than the Stephen Avery story. Uh, I could go on too long, but who wants to listen to me that long, Bo? But as to why and how, you know, when did Teresa Hubbock, what day was she murdered? Well, it had to be Halloween, you know. Uh, where? Well, in this this bizarre rural, you know, hilly salvage yard and with a storm that came in, a dark driving rainstorm. And, and when was Penny, Penny Burtson the victim of the first crime, who incidentally... Uh, is kind of one of the unsung heroes, or maybe sung heroes in this case, uh, went on to work in restorative justice after her assault and to work on wrongful convictions. But anyhow, when and where uh, was her assault in 1985? It was on this gorgeous, pristine stretch of Lake Michigan shoreline uh, on an 85-degree on an summer day, if you can imagine that, uh, in northern Wisconsin. You know, and, and I could go on and on, but... It's just uh, one of the things I noticed in this story, and the characters, too, the folks who were involved, you know, right up to Ken Kratz, the DA, uh, in the murder case. They're just kind of caricatures, to some extent, of each of their their occupations, and it made it a fascinating story to write about. Which, and I want to just jump for a second to the documentary makers of Making a Murderer, and then I want to go back, um, you know, to to the murder of Teresa Halbeck, and even before that, your direct contact with Avery, then we'll get to the murder. But these two filmmakers, who were, I think, students at the time, in, in 2003, were there when Avery is released. So they must have been following this case when it was being investigated as a wrongful conviction, having no clue what was going to happen in 2005, his arrest, right? You know, I could be wrong about this, Beth, but I think, and a lot of people uh, have mentioned that, but I'm, I'm, I think that the footage they showed from Stephen Avery being released from prison uh, in 2003 
um, was from television stuff. Oh, and the footage when he arrived at home, I'm not sure because that seemed more like home, you know, footage. My understanding is that they first saw the story uh, when he was arrested for murder in the New York Times, a small story, and then headed out here to Wisconsin as very recent grads from uh, Columbia, I think, the film uh, school uh, and maybe law school for one of them. One of the filmmakers is a law grad from Columbia, too. Uh, but they, they did learn about it early and tracked the entire, both trials, uh, very uh, thoroughly. You know, they were in the courtroom filming. Um, and really give you a sense uh, about the characters, the people, and, and you know everybody knows who watched it. Kind of give you the, a feel of of the case and the area, um, and and what was going on. Um, you know, I have my views about whether it was an accurate feel, but they they certainly followed it very carefully. Well, his trial, which was in February, it was started in February uh, two thousand seven. Uh, Court TV, where I was working at the time, all, considered covering it and decided not to. But I can tell you all eyes were in Broward County, Florida at that time because Anna Nicole Smith had just died and she was you know, in a morgue there and people were trying to figure out what to do with her body. And, you know, and so oh, we yeah. were all over there. All eyes were there yeah. while this case was in jury selection and beginning uh, sure. in your county. So let's go um, just before the murder. You say in your book, your um, your first book, The Innocent Killer, that you had direct contact on a couple of occasions with Stephen Avery, cross-examining him, I think, in court once and also um, at your deposition. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the first case was a jury trial um, with his girlfriend at the time, Jody Stakowski, who uh, people who follow this will also know that was Stephen Avery's girlfriend, uh, shown pretty prominently in the documentary Making a Murder, and interviewed later, I think, on Nancy Grace. So this was Stephen Avery's girlfriend at the time Teresa Halbach was killed. Jody, I had charged, um, and mind you, there's only five prosecutors in this county where I work. So, you know, it just happened to fall on my intake months, and I had charged Jody Stakowski with drunk driving. I think it was fourth offense. And Stephen Avery wrote me a letter um, and said, you know, Jody wasn't driving. Uh, I was. And uh, please dismiss it. Uh, and then the trial date came, and, and his attorney had told me ahead of time it listed Stephen Avery on his witness list. It was a case where the car was in the ditch, I think, got a snowy day or something. So it was one of those where evidence showed later that the driver left the scene and was drunk, and that was Jody Stokowski, way over the legal limit, and had admitted to driving. But Stephen took the stand and uh, said, no, he was the driver. The jury did not believe uh, Stephen. It you know, it wasn't a real hard case as the prosecutor because Stephen was nowhere around, and Jody had admitted to the police that she was driving. But anyhow, he wanted to protect Jody. I think he had a sense sort of of he was owed one, you know, or more than one. <laughs> uh, and he was certainly owed a lot of money, uh, but he wasn't owed a, a pass for his uh, activity uh, or his girlfriend's activity. And uh, so Jody was in jail, Manitowoc County Jail, when the murder happened. And that's why you see in the film uh, uh, of Making a Murder, you see Jody going in and out of the jail on Huber Law. Uh, so that was the first time I met Avery, and you know he comes across. Um, he he's able to carry on a conversation. Uh, uh, I mean, not a real involved conversation, but he he he's a fairly um, 
friendly, he's too strong, but he certainly doesn't send, uh, you know, uh, shivers up your spine or anything. He's not someone you would, you would pick as somebody, uh, if you didn't know more about him as an, as an extremely, what I believe is violent and kind of sex crazed, uh, individual. He just, that's not him when you meet him in, in that kind of setting court. And then, uh, the second time I met, Stephen was at a deposition. I was deposed in his wrongful conviction lawsuit, and Stephen came to every single one, uh, his lawyers told me later, of the depositions of the various witnesses. So you'd have police, you know, who were uh, testifying uh, from uh, one of the persons I think probably knew and maybe assisted in his wrongful conviction. Uh, years earlier, sitting there, and there was Stephen, you know, and uh, he wanted to see uh, each witness. And uh, and that time, too, he was, you know, I sat right next to him, and, and a similar uh, vibe that I got, I guess, was this is a guy who who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and had had a lot of difficulties in life and had done some, some you know, he was pretty out of control, uh, but he was not the kind of person... At that time, who was it was readily apparent that he would have done something like uh, I believe the evidence clearly shows he did in the murder case. But it's a question that so many people ask. He was so close to resolution in his civil suit, which probably would have ended in a, in a settlement, right? That like right. depositions were winding down. Like, right. I mean, why would he do something as stupid and horrendous right. as as right. kill right. Teresa Hombach when he was about to become a millionaire? Right, it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around, but I think um, I covered this too, and I think this explains a good bit of his mentality at the time. He inter- he uh, gave an interview to a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter, um, and started kind of reminiscing. This is maybe a year after he was out, which would be about a year before the murder. He started reminiscing about the time in the prison, his time there, and how he'd sit in the the yard, the courtyard, and kind of watched the jets fly by, almost like he missed it. And then he also talked about how hard it was on the outside. Uh, some days he just had to go for a ride. He couldn't keep it all inside. I think there was difficulties at home. And and I think he, well, I know, he even said, some days just put me back in there, get it all over with, you know. And I think there were some real demons, uh, as was shown later, and not just by the mur- by the murder. Um, some real demons in Stephen Avery uh, that the million dollars, um, millions of dollars, the, they were at the forefront of his uh, his mind. Um, I, I know he loved the idea of making a lot of money someday, but. It's kind of like the lottery winner sometimes. If it falls into the hands of the wrong people, it uh, it actually can make their lives worse. I don't know that it would have made Stevens any better. I don't think he thinks much beyond, uh, you know, a couple weeks or if that. And when he's in a state like he was, I don't think he thinks much beyond the next minute of what, uh, what he wants uh, to do. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think looking at it in that, in that respect, it, it does uh, it, it doesn't uh, make it impossible or unlikely that he still did what he did, even though he was going to become a millionaire, which for a lot of us would be wonderful. Uh, so let me, well, first of all, 
going back to Jody Stokowski. So the time that Teresa Halbeck is murdered and Jody is in jail, it's because of your prosecution of her. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yep. All right. And what kind of sentence did she get? Do you remember? I think she got like nine months jail uh, in that area and probation um, okay. with Huber, though, so she could get out and go to work. You're listening to the Karis on Crime podcast series. It's time for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm Beth Karis, and I'm talking to Michael Griesbach, a prosecutor from Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, who knows a lot about Stephen Avery the subject of the Making a Murderer Netflix hit series. Michael has written two books about Stephen Avery. The most recent one was published in the fall of 2016, and it defends the murder conviction of Stephen Avery, for the murder of Teresa Halbach. Now, I want to talk about the murder, but first of all, your first book, The Innocent Killer, deals with the exoneration, and you deal with the murder, because it's such a twist, right? That's why The Innocent Killer, right? Right, then, right. And then we're going to talk about the murder, but you you watched Making a Murderer earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And I, what was what were you feeling when you were watching it? A lot of a lot of different emotions. Um, the first one was just you know I binged on it like a lot of people did. I think two nights I watched it, and having a movie or a show or a documentary made about a place where you work every day, the courthouse, and uh, or filmed there, and people that you work with, um, many of them every day, about this case that I had already been obsessed with uh, for years. Um, you know, The Innocent Killer came out a couple years before Making a Murder. Um, and I knew I was going to be in it, uh, in the episode, briefly in episode one for a couple minutes. Um, so I, I found it really fascinating to watch all this. Um, and it is, my impression was that it, it's really well done in terms of how it drew me in. Like everyone else, I, uh, you know, right down to sort of the, the score of music that they use, uh, kind of this eerie, um, uh, sort of uh, feel to it, almost Fargo-ish feel to it, you know, mm-hmm. and, the, and the geese. And, and just, I think they really presented uh, a really artfully done thing. So that was part of what I thought. Uh, I was really enjoying it. But I also started to feel pretty early on um, a real concern that they were, they were uh, being real one-sided about it and that uh, they had an agenda that they were going to pass and it wasn't going to be good for our for our court system and our office and the sheriff's department, law enforcement in Manitowoc County. It became obvious very quickly uh, that they were taking the position, and I know they say they weren't taking a position, but it's the position that, you know, he was probably set up again in the second one and that evidence was planted. So I started worrying about it, um, and uh, worrying becoming, about it uh, be- because of the impression, the perception people have, or maybe there was some truth to it. A little bit of both, uh, you know. As the night went on, there were some things that I saw um, that I did not know about. I wasn't aware of. I did not prosecute the murder case. You know, we had a conflict of interest, so I followed it like everybody else did from 
from the the view of the media, and I had my own caseload to keep up with. So there was a lot about the murder I did not know about. And as I watched some things, I I started having uh, some doubts. Uh, you know, I I I I still believed in my heart that that Stephen Avery did this, but I, you know, there's belief, and then there is certainty beyond any doubt whatsoever. And uh, I did not feel comfortable um, with with how I uh, with how much I knew and how much I didn't know about the book. Uh, excuse me, about the murder. Because in the book that I had written, I really didn't focus on the murder. I, like everybody else, assumed as soon as the confession came about, Brendan Dassey's confession, uh, that, look, this was what we call slam dunk, right? There's just no question that he did it. So I'm not going to worry that much about that. My interest was in the wrongful conviction when I wrote the book. Uh, and having watched this and seen a few other things that I just, scratched my head about, I I did start to become very concerned uh, about whether it was absolutely certain, 100%, uh, as close as you can get to it, that Stephen Avery uh, wasn't set up again. And that's what prompted you to write your second book very quickly, Indefensible, that came out recently. It is because I was right. I was, you know, I was presented with this thing where I see this documentary as really taking that position really strongly, and I could tell in some ways biased and just accusing police that I know of the worst thing you can imagine, planting evidence uh, for police officers anyhow in the justice system, obstruction of justice. They were accusing them of, and our whole county basically of, you know, being kind of like a. the old Alabama or Mississippi kind of uh, corruption, you know, or Chicago, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had seen that, and then uh, against that, I had some doubts myself. So I knew at that time I really did want to explore this further, and and uh, and the story became this huge international thing at that point that I thought I could write another book about it, um, starting with Making a Murderer, and really delve into the facts to satisfy my own mind. And I was hoping others, if it came true, that uh, there was no question that Avery was guilty, or if it came true the other way, frankly. I thought I had a story to tell. So so I, I read the book. I've read both of your books. And I, mm-hmm. I, I looked for evidence. I was really waiting to read something that we didn't hear in Making a Murderer. Because when mm-hmm. Ken, Ken Kratz, who doesn't prosecute anymore, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. He went public soon after making a murder, saying 90% of the incriminating evidence was left out. So I waited for him to, like, tell us what, what that is. And mm. I, my recollection is he said 90%. I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what I recall. And I don't recall hearing much from him. Now, mm. I know he has a book coming out sometime, maybe early next year, I think. It, mm-hmm. He has a book coming out, so maybe there'll be more in it. But the only mm-hmm. thing I recall hearing is sweat DNA on the hood latch of her car that wasn't in Making a Murderer. But you've mm-hmm. got more in your book. So um, so now I want to talk about the murder. You Actually, mm-hmm. you were on the property, weren't you, when they were doing searches or something at some point? I was. Uh, when the car was found, when Teresa Halbach's RAV4 was found, um, I was called in uh, to help with it, a, a search warrant. Um and at that point, it was still a missing persons uh, complaint, and uh, 
gathering uh, information, basically drafting a search warrant is what I was involved in, the affidavit for the search warrant. And when it became clear uh, that day that Stephen Avery was very likely, um, you know, involved, uh, our office, including me, uh, got out uh, of the investigation and anything having to do with the prosecution owing to the conflict of interest. So, but I was there on the day it was uh, the vehicle was found. Uh, an amazing scene, really. But uh, uh, okay, and these were civilians who found it, right? It was a search party, not the police. Right, right. A volunteer search party looking for the vehicle, or Teresa had gone to the Avery Salvage Yard because that was the last known, uh, you know, place where she was. Um, Did you not find it suspicious that it wasn't found by the police, or? Um, at the time, I didn't know, uh, you know, what the, the history was of what they had been doing. This was a Calumet County missing person uh, complaint, mm-hmm. and the Sheriff's Department of Calumet County was primarily responsible. I think they had enlisted the help of Manitowoc when they found out that some of her assignments that day were in Manitowoc, but... You know, as a prosecutor, you're not working that close with the police until there's a crime or a, uh, a suspicion of an actual crime. So nothing had happened uh, to involve our office. Um, I didn't even know she, there was a person missing named uh, Teresa Halbach until uh, until I was called in uh, that day after her vehicle was found. Got it. And Calumet County was involved because that's where she lived. Right. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So what uh, makes you so sure that Stephen Avery is guilty? Because that's your conclusion. It is. And there, uh, boy, I, you know, I'm tempted to say uh, we need two hours and we don't have two hours. No. But the other way is for uh, folks to read the book, but not everybody will read the book. But let me, let me put it this way, okay? Leave aside for a minute all the physical evidence, which is all a prosecutor's dream case, the physical evidence, but which also the defense has turned on its head and said it's just evidence of evidence planting. Um, so let's leave all that aside for a minute, and then you look at what else is there, the circumstantial evidence. Um, Stephen Avery, it turns out, uh, if not lured Teresa Halbach there, um, did everything he could, and I think lure is actually a fair word. Kratz has used it, and I think it's fair to say uh, lured her to the salvage yard that day. He, um, you know, this car that he said he was putting up for sale and that he called her place of employment, the Car Trader magazine, to get a photo shot of so he could put it in this magazine, Um, that vehicle wasn't his. It was his sister, Barb's, who lives next door uh, at the salvage yard in a different trailer home, I think. And she did not want the car put up for sale at all. In fact, they had an argument about it. That was her vehicle. She wanted it for the kids. Um, but Stephen Avery insisted that he put it up for sale um, without her permission. So he calls this place where Teresa works, leaves her name, by the way, B. Yanda, not Stephen Avery, uh, because uh, he had, uh, well, he had creeped out, for lack of a better term, uh, Teresa Halbach last time she was there when he sold one of his cars. And I think it was clear, um, 
concealed who he was um, when he asked, and he specifically asked them to send that girl who they had sent before to the to the salvage yard. Um, then he had uh, used the Star 67 uh, feature on his phone when he called Teresa's cell phone uh, so that it wouldn't show up as Stephen Avery. Um, he had taken off work that afternoon, something he had only done once before in uh, several years. Um, he uh, essentially lied to the police later. For, so first of all, you have him wanting this girl there, coming up with a way to get her there without him knowing, uh, without her knowing that it was him. Um, so that that should be pretty telling, not you know, not nowhere near beyond reasonable doubt kind of proof. Uh, but then you have him talking to the police later, um, giving lots of different stories about whether she even showed up. And then, well, yeah, she showed up, but I only saw her through the window. And then, oh, yeah, that's right, I did speak with her, and then she left. He actually called um, the, the her place of employment about three or four days after she was there, after it became in the media uh, known and announced that she was missing. Stephen Avery, the evidence is he called her place of employment and told them she didn't show up. Um, that's pretty telling when you think about it. Um, let me hit you with two other quick things. Uh, the, he was at around this fire with Brendan Dassey uh, within, I'd say, two or three hours that night of Teresa's death, um, the same fire, fire pit where a lot of her remains were found. And, and this, I think, is, is really good evidence. Um, he and Brenda Dassey, through several people's statements, including Brendan's, together were cleaning a portion of the floor of the garage um, with bleach. And Brendan said he had seen a dark substance there, which everybody believes is blood. And it's the exact location in the garage where Brendan Dassey said that Stephen Avery shot Teresa Hawbuck. So you have these two who are involved, uh, or at least statements they involve, cleaning the area where where the victim was shot the day after. You have them in, uh, hanging out at this fire and building this huge fire pit where the victim's remains are found. And you have Stephen Avery bringing her or getting her there um, to commit a crime. You know, there, there's loads of other stuff, but I think if you look at those things and then you would have to discount uh, and assume that the police somehow were able to plant uh, about four or five pieces of really damning pieces of physical evidence, um, that's what you'd have to buy into, and you'd have to ignore all the other stuff to think that Stephen Avery was uh, what set up. Okay, so two things that you've just mentioned also that jumped out at me from the book. One is the hmm. garage, because the photos that I remember seeing of the garage in Making a Murderer, it, there hmm. are a lot of junk in there, and I thought, there's no way she's killed in the garage. There would be... Hmm. I would thought there would be a lot of blood. You wouldn't be able to clean it all up. There'd be some spatter maybe, uh, cast off, I don't know, uh, like the back splash, whatever. Um, uh-huh. it, I just thought there'd be blood they couldn't clean up. And you're saying there was a section of the garage, which I don't think we saw photos of, that was cleaned. How how do law enforcement know what the area was cleaned? They uh, they use luminol. Uh, luminol testing is 
for blood, but it also tests bleach. And the luminol hit on the section uh, where uh, Brendan Dassey says that Teresa Halbach shot uh, uh, Teresa in the garage. Right, where um, Stephen shot Teresa. Excuse me, where Stephen shot Teresa in the garage. And that's the same location where Brendan Dassey said he was with Stephen cleaning mm-hmm. that section of the garage. So you have these two guys using bleach at night, cleaning a section where uh, it's confirmed that there was bleach in the same section where Brendan said Teresa shot her in this garage and where there is a bullet found in a crack um, with Teresa's DNA on it fired from Stephen's gun, um, which they accused also of planting. Uh, But, you know, you start putting those coincidences together. So now they planted it just where Brendan said he and Stephen cleaned it up with with bleach, and there was a red substance they were cleaning, and they were using rags to wipe it clean. And oh yeah, Brendan Chatter there. You know, it just, it just, it, there's too much pointing to it. It was a mess of a garage, but there were sections that were open. You know, you could certainly walk through it. And the bullet fragment was very small. It was in a crack. Um, and you know you can you can look at all of this and um, one piece at a time, um, and you can think, well, it's possible. You never know that even though Stephen and Brendan were cleaning that with bleach, might it's possible it had nothing to do with the murder, and it's possible the police just put a bullet there and somehow got Stephen's DNA in it and the bullet was fired from his gun. You know, it's possible Brendan, without being led, said that uh, Stephen shot Teresa in that location of the garage. Um, Anything almost is possible. You know, and and keep in mind we're just talking about one piece, although a a large piece of the few put together, uh, to suggest his guilt, and there's another... Ten pieces, probably five of them, just as strong. Um, that all these things you can kind of discount, but you you'd have to discount all the others while you're looking at this one, and speculate just about this one. You know, and it's not the way the human mind works. It is the way the human mind works for people who are convinced and kind of have adapted this this and made it real personal and uh, kind of kind of joined their identity to to a belief that Stephen Avery was framed. Um, then you can start, you know, all this, this kind of illogic. When you really look at all of it together, uh, this is a, a story of kind of how the mind works, in my mind, uh, having experienced the other side and what they say to me, uh, because I'm part of this conspiracy and the, sort of the level of their of where their minds can go uh, with with reason and intellect kind of taking a, a break from uh, their conclusions. Well, there's, there's another piece of evidence that you wrote about in your book, Indefensible, that was new information to me, and it had to do with the condition of the rubber stopper of that blood vial that mm-hmm. was in evidence from the rape case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we saw it in Making a Murderer, and they zoomed in on that, hole mm-hmm. in the vial, like an, like a syringe had been inserted into mm-hmm. it. It's like, oh my God, maybe somebody took some mm-hmm. blood and planted it in her RAV4, in her car. 
But what you wrote about that vial and the reason for the hole to me was really also astounding. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I can't. You know, Beth, that's that to me is the most sort of visible example of how this whole thing was kind of a hoax. Um, that stopper and that hole in that stopper, it would actually be a surprise if it wasn't there. Um, because that vial is a, a vial of Stephen's blood that was taken for purposes of one of the earlier appeals. Uh, I see. I for thought it was DNA test. Okay, I uh, thought it was older. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was. It was old. I mean, it was 1999, I think, because one of the earlier appeals also sought evidence. So it it was old, and it was in the clerk's file. But there you have it, and it was there, and making a murder, like you say, zoomed in and showed that hole, and even Jerry Buting, after making a murder, went on national TV and said, see, there's a hole in the vial, that's where the police took the blood from and, and planted in Stephen, in Teresa Halbach's RAV4, leaving the clear impression that, you know, he was completely framed, and as a viewer, you would see that hole and think, my goodness, why would that be there? Of course, they probably did plant it. But in fact, there was a witness waiting to testify, and the defense, frankly, kind of gave up that whole argument at trial because the witness for the state, who was the nurse, who at the time withdrew the blood specimen from Stephen Avery, was ready to testify and had given written statements saying that she put the hole in the stopper of the vial because that's the method uh, with which it gets in there uh, when you draw a blood specimen for a forensic analysis. So she took the blood from Avery uh, with the needle. It goes through, a, I assume, a very small tube and then goes through, uh, 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 the, the, uh, through the blood, uh, the stopper and the blood vial through inserting a hole, uh, another needle on the other side. So there's a complete clear-cut uh, in fact, experts say it always happens that way. The surprise would be if the hole's not there. Uh, so clear-cut evidence to me of making a murder. Uh, maybe I made maybe the words a bit strong, but I put it in an op-ed in, in the Wisconsin State Journal that it's basically propaganda. I mean, you show something that just isn't uh, what it what it's purported to show, uh, and you show it very clearly and in a very dramatic way. Now, the presence of the substance EDTA in the vial, a preservative to help just to preserve blood so it doesn't degrade, uh, was not present. EDTA was not present in the in the in the van. I mean, in the Rav Four, right? Right, right. However, I don't know. I'm not so convinced about that that evidence because the guy who testified did he like do it once before in O.J. Simpson's case? I don't think the testing is so sophisticated. Yeah, I, I went through that pretty carefully in the book. I went through a lot of the testimony of the FBI uh, analyst, um, and I get where you're coming from. Um, he he developed the protocol for it uh, within two weeks. Uh, the two sides kind of played cat and mouse with the blood and whether they should test it for preservatives or not. And in the end, the state said, we want to do it, and they did it. Uh, the guy dropped everything, the, the FBI analyst, uh, Mark LeBeau, and uh, developed this protocol to test it and uh, did and tested the blood in the vial in, from the old case, and it did contain EDTH, this preservative that would be in uh, that substance because it's forensic. 
And then he tested the blood, some of the blood from the RAV4 and the swabs, and that did not contain it. Um, you know, it was discounted uh, in the O.J. Simpson case. A lot of years did pass. Um, that was all brought up at trial by Jerry Buting and Dean String. But I guess I would say this. If it was just the strength of the FBI testing that said that that blood um, did not contain EDTH, uh, then uh, I I would not, you know, find that beyond any reasonable doubt, if there was nothing else. Um, but I think, again, if you look at all the evidence together, um, it, it, there's just no question um, that 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 Stephen Avery did this and that that blood was not uh, planted. Where would it have come from? You know, it did not come from the vial. Uh, Okay, so, I mean, I could talk to you for another hour, and I know you've given us a lot of time. I do have a few more questions to kind of bring us up to date. Um, sure. And, well, first of all, Avery ended up settling his lawsuit to pay for his, his defense attorneys, right, at his murder case. Right. He settled, uh, what, a $36 million lawsuit that might have settled for maybe low two-digit number or something. For I uh, settled it for $450,000, I believe, or $400,000, most think- of which went... Why so little? Well, I think as soon as the murder happened, the value of his case dropped like crazy. First of all, um, if they wanted to, to uh, if if it wouldn't settle and it went to trial, I think people would be reluctant to reward him much. But the other thing is, he didn't have any money, to, uh, so he would have had the public defender. Um, so he needed the settlement money to uh, to hire uh, Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. Okay, now. Indefensible, your second book uh, came out, or at least it went to press, um, before the federal district court decision in Brendan Dassey's case throwing out his conviction. Right. What's going on with that now? And you you think it's okay? So, yeah, sure. So a federal magistrate in Milwaukee um, granted a, a, a writ of habeas. Um, saying that the state court messed up uh, severely enough that it was going to reverse the state court, something the feds don't do all that often, um, but uh, saying essentially that um, the the confession of Brendan Dassey was not a voluntary confession and that the police used coercive methods uh, to to get a confession that the judge even said he's not... You know, he, he has questions about uh, the accuracy of the confession. But really, the only legal issue was whether it was a voluntary confession. And he found it's not. So right now, that's up on appeal, uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, for that court to decide uh, whether to affirm uh, the federal magistrate's rule um, ruling or to uh, to reverse it. So... We'll see uh, where that one's up. I think in about, uh, at the end of October, I think the state's brief is due. Um, the, the, um, the defense is, is, uh, has, has done its thing at the magistrate level. So we'll be following that. Now, uh, do you think that would have any effect on uh, Stephen Avery's case if it's indeed thrown out? And I say this also, I want to add this because I, I've watched parts one and almost all of part two of Dr. Phil's show, which was mm-hmm. um, on oh, earlier this week, early October, with mm-hmm. Stephen Avery's fiancé and now ex-fiancé. 
But he right. says at one point in the show, in part two, that Dassey's conviction, I think he meant confession, was used against Stephen Avery at his trial. That's not true, is it? Completely untrue. Yeah, the state could not use it at all uh, because Brennan Dassey did not uh, cooperate with the state. They wanted to use him, but he refused. Um, and also it was hearsay uh, to bring it in through the police. So Dassey, the state was not able to use Dassey's confession at all in Avery's trial. So the one really should not affect, whatever happens on Dassey's case should not affect um, Avery's case uh, at all, really. It will in people's mind, you know, public perception. Um, I think they're sort of tied together. Uh, if there's this belief that the system unfairly treated uh, Brenda Dassey, it just goes further to to sort of add to the belief that it also untreated uh, uh, treated uh, Stephen Avery unfairly. Now, now, Stephen Avery's attorney, Kathleen Zellner, is a very good attorney with a very good track record for exonerations. I met her at I met her at Drew Peterson's trial, but she was maybe doing some commentary. She wasn't one of his lawyers, and uh, that was in two thousand. Mm-hmm. 12. Um, but that's, I just had one conversation with her. She has a great record. She's putting it out there that, you know, this guy's, you know, she's got a good case. She's mm-hmm. gathering some good evidence. W- w- mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, if, if, uh, guilt or innocence were decided by, uh, you know, the confidence of tweets, uh, she, she would have won already by, by far. But I, I don't know. You know, I read very carefully her motion for retest, for testing of, uh, physical evidence. And, uh, I wish, uh, to be honest that we could get a move on, you know, <laughs> that, that, that we'd get a brief file from the state as to whether they object and to which evidence they object for the retesting. Kathleen Zellner has also said, essentially, she knows who did it. You know, she has this alternate suspect, and uh, she um, hasn't played any cards, though. Hasn't said who, hasn't given any hints about who, um, has thrown out a lot of allegations, um, but... So far, really, there's there's nothing new that I can think of other than this thought that uh, Teresa Hubbock's cell phone uh, pinged off a tower uh, west of the Avery Salvage Yard, which is which suggests that she left uh, the Avery Salvage Yard alive. Um, but that's discounted by a lot of people who know how cell phone towers work, you know. But that's really the only thing I can think of right now. Um, that she has really a detail that she says she has that's new. So I guess we just have to wait um, to see what she what she has. Great. All right. Well, we will all be following this very carefully. Now, I did have a question here before we wrap it up, and it's a detail. It's a real. It's a detail that came out in Doctor Phil's show where this now ex fiance. She's an ex, right? Because I didn't finish episode two, part yeah, two. Another ex. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. But she, they're not together anymore. Okay. Well, she said that uh, Stephen Avery, uh, on, in his area of the prison, there are four cell phones that circulate where he's housed, and he has to wait till it's his turn. I w- that really surprised me because I, I mean, a cell phone. I thought they were supposed to record calls, you know, from from prisons. Right. That's my experience too. That all calls are recorded, and the inmates are warned about calls. Um, but I heard from somewhere else too that that is uh, 
the policy there I, uh, that uh, that it, that he did not. There's no infraction of any any rules uh, by talking on the cell phone. I don't know if there's a way to record and if they're warned about that too. Uh, what's in a cell phone? I I really don't. Uh, I wish I had some special information about the prison rules, but my understanding is that none were broken. And if they're not recorded, it does sound kind of strange. Uh, but yeah, I I don't uh, I don't know more than that, Beth. Okay. And um, there was one final note, and and then I promised to go to my closing script. Uh, Stephen Avery had other brushes with the criminal justice system. And when people say he did 18 years for a crime he didn't commit, absolutely true. He did not do that rape, a terrible travesty of justice. But he did get, I guess, a six-year consecutive, a con- concurrent sentence with right. that. And that was for what? That was for the incident that was kind of downplayed, in fact, definitely downplayed in the documentary, when he rammed his vehicle uh, into a vehicle being driven by his house on a highway at highway speeds, uh, by his neighbor, um, and then approached her, uh, holding a, a rifle to her head and, uh, telling her that he, she needs to get into his car, demanding that she get into his car. This was a woman, by the way, he had been basically stalking, peering down at the road, uh, over months and, uh, had, uh, uh, Sexually gratified himself uh, when she drove by earlier, um, had run into the road nude ahead of her. Um, so, yeah, he he was convicted of that crime, ramming her. I think it was recklessly endangering safety. Uh, we believe would have, and most people really look at it, his intent was to assault her, but he let her go uh, because it was cold and it, she had a baby in the car. But so six of those 18 years, um, he would have served for that crime anyhow because he did plead and was was given a six year concurrent sentence, not in any way to minimize, like you said, uh, the years he spent wrongfully in prison. Uh, but this is not a this is not a, a nice uh, you know neighborhood guy uh, before the wrongful conviction and, either. And the woman that he held, rammed into and held the gun at, uh, was the wife of a deputy sheriff, which some think may be why Avery was on the radar of the sheriff's department mm-hmm. and they went after him for the rape. I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think there might be. So, Michael, thank you so much for all your time today because I really could have asked you a lot more detailed questions. I, we, you know, I took an hour of your time and I really appreciate that. And I want to thank all of you out there for listening. It's been enlightening and I, maybe we can talk again as the oh, case that'd be progresses. Great, Beth. Yeah, right. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Great. And just an update after this interview, which was conducted in November 2016, A U.S. federal district court judge found that Brendan Dassey's confession was indeed coerced, it was unfair, violated his constitutional rights, and the judge ordered his release within 90 days unless the state indicated an intention to appeal, which they did do. Appellate arguments were heard in February 2017, and as I record this, a decision is uh, being made by the the appellate court on whether or not Brendan Dassey's confession, his conviction was really... can stand up, can uh, be reinstated, basically. So that's where we stand right now as I record this in uh, February of 2017. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm Beth Karras. 
You know, I welcome your feedback. So feel free to post your questions or comments to me on Twitter. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karras on Crime. Post them in the forum, on the website, Karras on Crime, or on Facebook under my name, Beth Karras. Until the next time, be well.